Welcome to the Euro Dollar of the University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I blew it, Jeff, but we're going to keep it. I'm feeling it today. Welcome to Euro Dollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and we're going to be discussing the August 11th, 2022, four-week U.S. Treasury bill auction. I know it doesn't sound very exciting, but it speaks to collateral scarcity, which is another way of saying money scarcity, not enough money in the world. And that may be the difference between just your garden variety recession and financial crisis. And that's not just me speaking, but Ben Bernanke, who's going to be holding our hand throughout this presentation and discussion and helping us understand what happened back then. And we'll see if we can apply the lessons to today. Jeff, we are going to be going over an article that you wrote for the Steve Van Meter Super Spectacular Show. It's titled, Welcome to the Worst Kind of Party. Where can people get this article? It's available right now for free if you sign up with your email at marketsinsiderpro.com, where you can get my articles. I've got a daily briefing that you can get, as well as Steve's uh, Momentum Timer Pro. There's a weekly product from Tracy Shukart, who people know on Twitter, so there's a bunch of stuff there at Markets Insider Pro that you can get free of charge for the for a limited time. Not much longer, but it's available. Sign up with your email. Jeff, you say that you are reviewing Ben Bernanke's post-Fed work, and you're saying it's a chore. And one of those things that just sticks in your craw is his use of the term finance instead of monetary. And it's not an accident. You think it's a way to cover his rear sector, because he's in charge of money, the central banker, ostensibly, but he's not in charge of finance, capital markets. You can blame that on other people. One of the articles, I believe, or papers that he wrote is the real effects of disrupted credit, evidence from the global financial crisis, autumn of 2018, Brookings Institution. Jeff, we'll be going over that one, right? Yeah, you said Bernanke's going to hold our hand, and I, 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 had, I already felt the queasiness in my stomach. Let's let Ben Bernanke guide us through a, a sort of an insight. That's the thing. You know, it's, you would think that we would want to listen to Mr. Bernanke tell us from the inside what happened. But when you read his, his academic scholarship, especially his post-tenure scholarship, it's almost always like third-person, passive voice, all this stuff, because it's always... Things were happening to him, not the, or not even he doesn't really even mention himself. Things were happening from the outside, not that he was inside and had an ability to affect everything. It was always outside factors, outside stuff. You would think that he was like us watching this all unfold from the same perspective rather than from what we were told was this was the guy on the inside who could fix these problems or at least or even before that, he, he even said it in, before the crisis. I'm the guy who will make sure this will never happen again. But that's not how he writes things after the crisis, though. He was the scholar about the Great Depression, the Great Depression scholar, the biggest one, most important one since Friedman and Schwartz. So who else would you rather have? And here I'm showing the audience his abstract from this paper. It takes up about a quarter of the page, so I guess I'm not going to read it all. But I summarize it as such. Money is important to the economy, comma, apparently. <laughs> I like that. We agree. He's, he's typical Bernanke because he never likes to make the solid conclusions. Like, oh, well, we kind of think that this is important, but um, we're not really sure. 
<laughs> now I'm going to read a little bit more specific quote that gets to the heart of the matter. Quote, as I argued in a speech some years ago, the occurrence of a massive and largely unanticipated financial crisis might be best understood as a failure of economic engineering and economic management rather than of economic science. I'm not sure what that means. I meant by that, that our fundamental understanding of financial panics, which after all have occurred periodically around the world for hundreds of years, was not significantly changed by recent events. Yes. I feel like I agree since... No, that's it. When you look at the global financial crisis in 2008, it looks, when you first look at it and think, oh, this is brand new. We've never seen anything like this happen before. And what he's saying is, yes, that's true. And we've said this a million times. The 2008 panic was a familiar panic. It just didn't take the same format that it had before. There wasn't a bunch of, you know, like you saw in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. There wasn't a bunch of depositors lined up outside banks converting their paper liabilities into cash. That's not what that's not what the panic was about. Instead, in 2008, it was an interbank panic in wholesale markets where banks themselves were kind of lined up in certain queues, um, not in the physical world, unable to convert anything to anything. So. It looks like it was a completely brand new thing, but really it was the same thing we've seen time and time. It was a panic. It was a panic that would have been familiar to anybody living through the 19th century. So Bernanke's at least starting out in the, with the correct interpretation, which was this was a panic. And it was a panic in the same way that we've seen throughout history. But that only raises more thorny questions, which is kind of what he was saying about, is this a problem of economic science or economic management? Well, if this was a panic familiar to economists throughout history, why didn't economists see this one coming? Something else is wrong here. Right from the very start, I hate the fact that he said, in fact, it bothers me to no end that he said that financial panics throughout history. No, damn it. It wasn't financial panics throughout history. There were monetary panics. That just, mm, it doesn't stick in my craw. That's, that's, this is the crux of the issue here. Avoiding responsibility, which means avoiding actually understanding what's going on and what's really wrong. Yeah, when I think of financial panics, I think of speculative panics. I don't think of the banking system, which I don't blame him for trying to distance himself from it. Here's another quote. Rather, we learned from the crisis that our financial regulatory system and private sector risk management techniques had not kept up with changes in our complex, opaque, and globally integrated financial markets. No, no. Complex, globally integrated monetary system. See, that's, I mean, again, he's uh, just use the word. <laughs> it bothers me. I don't know if we're going to be able to get through this, Emil. I'm going to throw things. <laughs> and in particular, that we had not adequately identified or understood the risk that a classic Financial panic <laughs> could arise in a historically oh, novel institutional setting. My blood pressure is way up right now because it's just it's so it's so frustrating. So I'm not being pedantic here. This is not just an academic exercise. This is a legitimate discussion about what actually happened. And by using the word financial, he is very purposefully trying to obscure what really went wrong. It wasn't a financial panic. Financial the financial disruptions were symptoms of the monetary panic, as they always were throughout history. Jeff, we have a series of graphs here, and I believe in your article here, you wanted to draw attention to the clear break 
between the pre-panic and the post-panic and the completely different world that we're in. And we've got three examples. The first one is U.S. bank loans to foreigners. We can clearly see exponential growth, then sideways. Then example B, commercial paper volume and spreads between financial institutions of commercial paper and non-financial institution commercial paper. Again, we can see the clear break. And the example C is uh, bank reserves. And ladies and gentlemen, you have to really look at that graph closely. At the very bottom there, you can see bank reserves. That's so important. They're there. And then the explosion of bank reserves later. But more importantly, more clearly, interest rate uh, swap hierarchy turning into interest rate swap uh, helter-skelter and inversion whereby the five-year pays more than the 30-year. So these three graphs show what? What were you trying to communicate, Jeff? That the entire system, the monetary system, broke down on August 9th of 2007. And regardless of whatever the Fed had done under Mr. Bernanke's tutelage and guidance, nothing worked. Nothing got the monetary system once the horses were out of the barn, there was no getting them back into it. The toothpaste was out of the tube. There was no going back to the old way of doing things. That's not what we've been told. We've been told over and over again that the Fed was a very successful in at least limiting the financial crisis from not being worse. I don't know how it could have possibly been worse, but that's the job saved aspect of uh, what we're supposed to believe here. And that quantitative easing after the crisis has fixed whatever was left over, right? And so we look at the what he's trying to say here, Mr. Bernanke, is that we've had financial problems because it can't be monetary problems because we fixed the monetary problems, so it must be financial problems, right? It's this word game to try to get a, it's this game of semantics to try to avoid having to admit what actually happened. Here's another quote from Bernanke, and it appears that he is dismissing, as you often do, that this was a balance sheet recession. Tell me if I've got that interpretation correctly. Although the deterioration of household balance sheets and the associated deleveraging likely exacerbated the initial economic downturn and the slowness of the recovery, I find that the unusual severity of the Great Recession was due primarily to the panic in funding and securitization markets, which disrupted the supply of credit. Seems Yeah, that's right. The purpose of Mr. Bernanke's paper here was to kind of look at the uh, sort of a narrow aspect of the of financial panic. And one was this mystery to economists. Why was the Great Recession so harsh and deep? And of course, there's a there's a parallel uh, discovery, which he or parallel inquiry that Bernanke doesn't want to get into in this paper, which is not just why was the recession so deep, but why was the recovery afterward not a recovery? I don't want to get into that, Bernanke says. I just let's just focus on the Great Recession, why it was so deep. What he determined, shockingly, is that what happens when companies can't get credit, it turns into an amplifier, a negative amplifier for all of the negative recessionary forces that makes a a normal recession into a quote unquote great recession. So the issue here is we have a monetary panic that cuts off credit to the economy that makes the economic situation much worse than it needs to be, which if you start reading it in that way, you kind of go back and say, well, wait a minute, this is not exactly what the, the narrative the Fed had set up at the time, because the Fed supposedly saved it from being much worse. But now here's Mr. Bernanke a decade later saying this credit thing 
the, the cutting off of the credit channel actually made the recession worse than maybe it needed to be. And when you realize we're not really talking about financial panic, but monetary panic, things are starting to line up and be put together. And the specific part about the balance sheet recession was that there are two major or two main explanations put forward by mainstream economics about how the credit channel can get cut off. And one of them is on the demand side, which is this balance sheet recession, which is nothing more than consumers and businesses gorge themselves on debt and credit before a crisis happens. Then they realize that they made a mistake. And so the demand for credit falls after the crisis because they had way too much debt to begin with. And there's really not a whole lot of evidence that that was the case, certainly in 2008, 2009, during the Great Recession, nor was there much evidence for it after the Great Recession, because at some point, a balance sheet recession, you have enough deleveraging that companies, businesses, and, and consumers, they start borrowing again. That never happened in the post-crisis era. So there isn't a whole lot of evidence for the balance sheet recession explanation, which leaves us with just what I said. Monetary panic cuts off credit, worse recession than it needed to be. Jeff, did I hear my reading of the BIS data on private non-financial debt in the United States says that there was too much credit, that households had gotten over leveraged. You're saying that's not the case. I agree with you regarding afterwards that the recovery wasn't due, was slow, was not caused by the re-leveraging, not being fast enough. But I believe you said that that wasn't the case beforehand, that they didn't, that there wasn't too much debt in households in the U.S. Is that correct? Is that your interpretation? No, I agree with you, Emil. I think that okay. is always, that has been a problem. And I think the issue isn't primarily debt, though. I think that's debt as a symptom of this modern financialized economy where the system almost requires too much debt in order to maintain itself. And so when we didn't have too much debt, suddenly we didn't have any growth. So I think the issue isn't the too much debt necessarily. That's sort of, again, the symptom of the problem, which was that we didn't have enough legitimate economic growth beforehand, certainly in the United States and other places around the world, because the monetary system had taken control. The banking system under the euro dollar had taken control of certainly in the developed world of too much economic activity, too much marginal economic activity that made it unstable and unsustainable. The modern economic system forces us to have too much debt. It also makes money formats equivalent or fungible or similar uh, money. We were just talking about credit. Bernanke suggesting, obviously, that there wasn't enough, uh, that that's where the problem was. But another format of credit is collateral, Jeff. And that's where we're going to go for the last part of this show. In that, you know, I don't think I did a great job there segueing. Jeff, how do we segue from just this discussion with Bernanke and the credit to now our discussion of collateral? I don't want to lose the audience. I, didn't, I don't think I did a great job there. No, I think you're on the right track. And it's again getting us back into the monetary system because on a personal level that he's loath to admit in public, Bernanke realizes this was a monetary panic. And he even says in the paper, he specifically says repo, collateral shortage, all this. Stuff. He mentioned these things that we've talked about endlessly on the show because it's that obvious when you look at it. It's one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so he's avoiding, he's doing everything he can to avoid saying money, trying to make this into a financial thing. But the monetary panic, the monetary breakdown, if you had to distill the 2008 crisis into a single, well, actually two words, if into two words, it would be collateral shortage. And so 
the chain of events which led us to this credit crunch situation, which made these recession much worse than it needed to be, began with a shortfall in collateral, wholesale funding using collateral. As collateral became an issue, that cut off funding, that then cut off credit. And as the point you were just trying to make, Emil, credit and money are blurred in the monetary system. There is no bright dividing line between one and the other. In many ways, credit is money and it's used in money in a lot of senses. So that is why, going back to our original point and even Bernanke's original point, the 2008 panic would have been familiar to anybody in the 19th century because it was really a monetary panic. The form of money was very different, but it was still a monetary panic. And it made the situation much worse than it needed to be, and primarily because once the collateral system began to reject bad quality collateral because it was accepted at too high of a too high valuations and low low haircuts before the crisis, there was just no going back. There was no elasticity in collateral, therefore was inelasticity in money, which led to the credit crunch and then every, all the economic consequences. I wonder if the, our monetary system, if an analogy could be made to the electromagnetic force, electricity, magnetism, light, they seem separate, but they're all part of the same order, same system, same force, just like our credit collateral money, which brings us to our very last point, Jeff, and that's the auction for the four-week bill. Now, you write a deep dive on some economic monetary issue, but then daily you also write about what's being reported and what's important in your interpretation. For example, you wrote about unemployment claims, the producer prices, industrial production out of Mexico. And on that same day, you wrote about the auction that took place on August 11th, the four-week bill auction. And you said that it attracted huge premiums, as in collateral scarcity, as in maybe another crisis is possible. If we're going into a slowdown and we have collateral shortage, maybe a crisis is possible. Tell us how do you know there's a collateral scarcity in play right now? Well, we compare, you know, something like treasury bill rates to some other alternative, which tells us that something is, seems to be out of line here. In this case, we use the Federal Reserve's reverse repo rate because that is the most risk-free collateralized lending opportunity any financial counterparty could ever, ever hope to get. Um, and the current RRP rate is 2.3%. So if, uh, if you can get 2.3% collateralized by U.S. Treasury collateral at the Federal Reserve, why would you ever go into any other investment at any other rate that's less than 2.3%? Maybe a couple of basis points less if there's some certain frictions or certain, certain things going on. But as we've seen in the four-week bill and occasionally some of the other bills like the eight-week or the, even the three-month bill at times, those yields will be significantly less. In some cases, like the middle of June, during the Italian European sovereign debt issue, the spread, the four week bill equivalent yield below RRP was just a ridiculous 60 basis points almost, which is an enormous, enormous premium being paid for the best quality collateral. And that's really what we're talking about. If you're a financial counterparty, you can get 2.3% at the Fed and you're accepting something like 2% in a four week bill. Why? Why would you get 30 basis point less in return? And the answer is because it's not about the return. It's about some other financial 
or monetary characteristic of the instrument that is that uh, the market is paying through the roof for a liquidity premium for the best quality collateral, which simply translates into a relatively severe collateral shortage. You were showing that graph while you were speaking, and I couldn't help but notice that there was a big spike down, a big leg down just before the September 2019 repo rumble, a warning, unheeded. Jeff, good show. I'll talk to you again next week. All right, watch out for the credit crunch, and I think I'm going to go need, I'm going to have to go vomit after uh, all that Bernanke finance stuff. <laughs>